0: Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David
1: Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world, ever, ever.
0: W is for Warren Peace. Or Jeffrey Alexander McCormack. So, uh, yeah, Warren Peace was his non-diplume working with David Bowie. Yes. And, uh, well, i tell you what, here's a great thing. So, uh, when we're doing the research for uh, this podcast, sometimes it's very, very easy. Like, for instance, uh, Woody Woodman he hasn't got a particularly great Wikipedia. No, not at all. Woody needs to look at that. Yeah, he does. Or get his people to do it. I do. If he's interested. If he's interested. Yeah. He's probably he's probably not, actually. But he has obviously got his book, Spider from Mars. Mm. And Mick Ronson never got round to writing an autobiography, but there's a brilliant book, uh, The Spider with the Platinum Hair, That's Weird right. and Gilly. That's right. And so we can delve into those, and of course there are various other books, and, uh, and and Jeff does get mentions in Any Day Now, but there's not loads about him in there, is there? No, not at all. Okay. And so uh, very cheekily, um, we got a whole Jeff and asked him if he would be kind enough to uh, fill in all of the gaps because we know loads about what he did with David, yeah, but we didn't know uh, too much about the the background, his early days, and all that kind of stuff. And of course, we do know that he met David at a very early age, yes. Um, and he's given us a load of information, and a, a lot of it is called from his brilliant books uh, from station to station, which came out in two thousand and seven on Genesis, Great. and uh, I know he's working on an updated version of it as well. Uh, so we'll get to uh, the stuff that Jeff sent through in a short while. But I, uh, I first was in the same room as Jeff when David Bowie did the session for Mark Radcliffe and I at Made a Veil mm. and uh, we'd met Bowie a couple of times at that point and we were obviously just beside ourselves it was just a massive moment for Mark Radcliffe and I and there were loads of people invited uh, and they stood on the gantry there at Made, uh, Made a Veil Studio 4 but when the word came out that War and Peace was turning up, the buzz just went up several notches, I tell you. He, oh, wow. Because okay. he's a mythical figure, you know. Yeah, so yeah. nobody knew too much about him, apart from what he'd done with David. Uh, but he was omnipresent, and everybody knew that him and David were like that. Now, mm. this isn't a TV item. I've got my fingers crossed together like that. I can that. see it. I can see him. They were like that. and uh, And so for him to arrive everybody got a real buzz about that. And so it was great, you know? And I've met him on several occasions, met him in London. He also came up and did an amazing show, and I'm forever grateful, uh, on the anniversary of David's passing. Oh, yeah. It was a remarkable programme, just because uh, Jeff he's obviously so close to David and it obviously just tore him apart when David passed. Um, but he doesn't, he doesn't spill the beans, you know, he's, he wasn't tipping up on everything talking about David and, mm. and being the big I am and all that. Mm. He just, you know, he, he guarded his, uh, his, his grief. Yeah. He did a couple of things, you know, and, and I was really honoured that, that he did our programme and it was so great. And also, uh, most recently, uh, I spent some time with, uh, with uh, Jeff and Joe, his mm. partner, brilliant people, uh, the Finding Fame, Ah, uh, screening in right. London yeah. and, and we had a great night, really really brilliant uh, But they're my experiences of uh, Jeff right. and Joe And, uh, and we're going to look at his career aren't we But you've, you've also uh, cross pollinated with him haven't you
1: Yeah I can't compete with that though I really can't, but I think when the first Well it would be the anniversary reissue of David Live came out, I'm guessing around 2004 Sometimes they a year later Aren't they, 2005, so I did a Q&A With him uh, for Uncut magazine Which sadly, I've lost somehow So I'd love to know what was involved in all that. Obviously, we were talking about David live, but we were talking about—I know we were talking about the entire Diamond Dogs tour, of course. You know, and everything went on in '74, and I know there's some great stuff in there. So I will—it's possibly in the in a drawer somewhere, or you know, you've got so many interviews in your archive, haven't you? It's just ridiculous. I I have. have. And we were talking
0: before, and I sent you through a link um, of um, so it was from the uh, Tower Ballroom, 1974. Yeah, and it surfaced quite recently, and I sent a link to Jeff. Okay, and it is them doing the Gene Genie, mm. and it is just incredible. I mean, I, w- I was so happy to see it. It's black and white. I was so so happy to see it, but at the same time, it just rubs salt in the wound that we never got the tour. But the great thing is, I can never pronounce the other guy with uh, with Jeff, um, so I won't bother. Um, uh, <laughs> no offense, but I'll just make a fool of myself again. No, that's fine. Um, but there's a th- the really really great stuff with Bowie sat on a chair, and they're all moving around like musical chairs, mm. and and leaning over into each other's microphones and being very. Dr- and yeah. quite hammy yes. and having a laugh mm. and there's a bit where uh, Bowie uh, covers up his cobblers with his hands and that's all right. that kind of stuff uh, but there's a great bit also where they're doing footsie. yeah they do that a few times don't they yeah great. and you just think this is just uh, Bowie was having a hoop oh. here so if you think about it we spoke to Herbie Flowers for cheap things mm. and he was great and they were talking about how a lot of the time the musicians were all behind the, uh, the stage that's right you know they were <laughs> yeah. hidden weren't they largely yeah, yeah. and uh, so all that really was to be seen as far as I can make was the three of them mm. more often than not? And there's David with his bezzy mate just gagging about on stage, yeah. doing one of the best tours ever and singing some of the best tunes ever. So
1: they were having a riot, by they the way. They were. It was a brilliant routine. And all the more amazing to think they he was playing sort of quite big places at that point. And he wasn't playing stadiums, but they're decent theatres, you know. And it's just three blokes and three wooden chairs. That's yeah. the great thing about it. As you say, they're having a laugh. They're messing about, but it's 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 choreographed. Of course, it's choreographed. And it's brilliant. As well, Tony Basil involved yeah. in all that, you know. So she came up with these ideas, and Bowie would throw ideas back at her, and somehow they worked it out. But you, didn't, you would never see that these days. <laughs> I'd Why it, would you, yeah, you know, three wooden chairs on a stage for a major
0: artist? It just wouldn't happen. I mean, there were other things in there. Obviously, you'd have you be juxtaposed against having a cherry picker coming out yeah, and all yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff. But yeah, that routine—it was almost like, a, almost like slapstick, wasn't it? And it just really did give you a great example of the mischief mm. that, that Bowie had in him, and obviously Jeff as well. Yeah. So I mean, if you look at them just gagging about, and like I say, and it's great, all the footsie and all that kind of stuff. But then eventually they're all kind of like putting their hands <laughs> across each other, and Bowie grabs his cobbler's like, you know, he's in a he's in a line on a football yeah, match. Yeah, yeah, that's a, right. A free kick. <laughs> and it just gave you a great idea of, of the friendship that was going on there. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, I mean, um, Jeff was uh, Bowie's constant companion, uh, you know, from Aladdin Insane, right mm. through until the LA years. Yeah, he? that's right. Yeah. You know, um, And so we're going to try and document it as best as we possibly can. Uh, but I can just vouch for uh, a war and peace, Jeff McCormack being just an absolute 100 percenter, as my dad used to
1: say. Oh, okay. So uh, as we know, it's... He's English vocalist, composer, and dancer, best known for his work with Bowie in the seventies. So, um, do you know Warren Peace? Uh, so that was the non
0: diplume given. We know that, and also um, uh, "Rock and Roll with Me" was uh, written, uh, co-written by yeah. uh, Jeff. Okay, yeah. so it's, it's credited to Bowie and uh, Warren Peace. Hmm. And uh, Jeff told me this, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying it. And um, he never he never received royalties for it right. because Tony DeVries insisted that Warren Peace was a uh, non diplome, another identity for David Bowie. Is that right? Yeah, wow. which is just incredible, oh. really. I mean, so and so he, he did it. He did, he changed his name and wrote this song. I think he started it on the piano. We'll probably right. get to that at yeah. some point. Um, and uh, and Bowie picked up on it, and they wrote it together. But yeah, it just somehow uh, oh, you know. Smoking mirrors just got got rid of it. Absolutely.
1: I mean, you imagine the royalties from that, Hey eh?
0: yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Anyway, so on to um, war and peace. Jeff's musical career. We'll call him Jeff from here on in. All right. So uh, Jeff, a long time friend of Bowie since our uh, school days in Bromley. Peace initially as G A McCormack uh, contributed backing vocals to a number of albums, beginning with Aladdin Sane in 1973
1: and continuing through to Station to Station in 1976. He appeared with Bowie during his 1973 tour of the states and Japan, traveling back to the UK via. By the Trans-Siberian Railway with the singer who refused to fly. He then performed on the final UK leg of the tour which ended with Ziggy Stardust's retirement at the Hammersmith Odeon in July Okay,
0: so with Bowie, Peace co-wrote the music for Rock and Roll With Me on Diamond Dogs and later turned blue on Iggy Pop's Lust for Life. He also appeared as an astronaut dancer and vocalist in the nineteen eighty floor show television special with Bowie in october seventy three and as one of the Diamond Dogs dancers vocalists on Bowie's nineteen seventy-four US tour. Uh, with fellow astronauts Ava Cherry and Jason Guess and Bowie as writer producer, Peace recorded an album's worth of material at Olympic Studios in late nineteen seventy three, which was eventually released as people
1: from bad homes in 1995. There's some great stuff on there yeah, as well, actually. Yeah, yeah, there is. And as you just mentioned there, in 2007, he published From Station to Station, Travels with Bowie 1973 to 76, which was an illustrated account of all his time in Bowie's entourage.
0: The A to Z of David Bowie with
1: Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. Right, we're going to do a Chuckle Brothers now on the discography, are we not? We Bob? are, so let's start with Bowie, of course. Aladdin Sane, he's backing vocals on Watch That Man and Panic in Detroit.
0: Yeah, pin-ups, backing vocals on Here Comes the Night, See Emily Play, Everything's Alright, I Can't Explain, Friday on My Mind, Sorrow, Shapes of Things, Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere, and Where Have All the
1: Good Times Gone, that's the whole lot. That's more life. or less everything. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's one, probably one tune he's not on. Uh, Diamond Dogs, as you mentioned, co-composer on Rock and Roll With Me. Uh, David Lye, backing vocals and co-composer, same tune. Backing vocals on Station to Station. And then, of course, his Iggy Stardust, the motion picture,
0: had to be there, and Bowie at the B, backing vocals as Jeffrey Alexander. So that was, again, a famous part of uh, Bowie's career, that he did the uh, Davy Bowie and Friends uh, yeah. for, for John Peel, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah,
1: that's right. Okay, and I've uh, just mentioned that he was co-composer of Turn Blue on Iggy's Lust for Life in 77, and you've mentioned People from Bad Homes with the Astronauts.
0: Yeah, right, and again, previously mentioned uh, in this section, Kevin Can and uh, his book Any Day Now, mm. which is a really, really thorough kind of uh, look at... David's life, but I mean, yeah, there isn't that much
1: of Jeff in it, and and that's why we went to him in, uh, initially. Yeah, so this is from Kevin Cann's book uh, about Jeff. In June 1954, whilst living in Bromley, David Jones, stroke Bowie, befriended schoolmate Jeff McCormack, who lived in neighbouring Cambridge Road. Three years later, Jones, McCormack, and George Underwood sang together in St Mary's Choir. Later in the late 60s, McCormack
0: worked for designer Michael Fish at his boutique in Clifford Street, Marleybone. He introduced Bowie to
1: Fish, who sold him two medieval-style velvet. Gowns. Alongside Underwood, Dana Gillespie and Mark Pritchett, McCormack was involved when Bowie did an in-concert radio show for John Peel in June 71. This marked Trevor Boulder's first appearance with Bowie McCormack often served as Bowie's travelling companion while on tour. In January '73, having been invited along as backing vocalist and extra percussionist, he and Bowie boarded the SS Canberra at Southampton, bound for New York. On arrival, they checked into the Gramercy Park Hotel five days later on the 30th of January. When the tour moved on to Philadelphia in mid-February, playing seven shows at the Tower Theatre, McCormack remembered... Bowie stalked his audience like a tiger. By the end, he'd be holding them entirely in his sweaty hands. There was the sweet rock and roll trick of getting to that moment of thanking the audience and saying good night, pretending not to know there's going to be an encore. Night after night, it would be the best part of the show. When it came time to leave for Japan on the 19th of March,
0: 1973, he and Bowie boarded the SS Orancy uh, as it sailed from Los Angeles. They stopped off in San Francisco the following day, deciding to spend the night ashore because they weren't happy with their birth. They met up with Bette Midler and went to a small club called The Boarding House, Back on board the ship, it finally docked at Yokohama just over two weeks later. So the thing is, also, uh, for Jeff's benefit as well, uh, just a byproduct of Mm. Bowie's fear of flying, Mm. they'd get off and travel in luxury and go around on all these cruise ships and everything when the spiders
1: are just flitting back and forth (laughs) on planes. Amazing. Just, you know, that two-week journey to Japan. Fantastic. On the journey home from there, a boat headed to Vladivostok, where they were due to pick up the Trans-Siberian Express. Bowie and McCormack improvised a cabaret act and performed space oddity, and Amsterdam for their fellow passengers. Wow. <laughs> when it came time to record pin-ups at the Chateau d'Ereville, just outside Paris, in July 73, the sessions for the album were interrupted by Lulu and McCormack's loud vocal warm-ups. We had to stop because we could hear them, but couldn't find them, Trevor Boulder said later. Eventually, they emerged from the reverb room, which half-deafened them, I think. On the 18th of October, 1973, during the filming of Bowie's midnight special show, the
0: 1980 Floor Show, at the Marquee, the newly formed Astronauts performed on the stage. The band is
1: led by Ava Cherry, with Jason Guess and McCormack, who has adopted the name Warren Peace. So that's where it came from, do you think, for the uh, 1980 Floor Show? It looks like it. In March 74, Bowie and McCormack travelled to Paris to meet the film director and stage producer, John Dexter, to discuss presentation ideas for touring Diamond Dogs. When it came time for the recording of the album itself, McCormack shared a writing credit As you mentioned, with Bowie on rock and roll with me after coming up with the basic chords at the piano so there's a book we've got so many Bowie books and that but uh, some of them uh, just are just
0: like really really plush and lush and mm. amazing and pretty expensive yes. I mean probably worth every penny I've not seen inside Jeff's book and I'm hoping and I'm thinking that there's going to be a, a, a kind of revised updated version of Station yeah. to Station mm. uh, but what I've seen of it and, and obviously uh, on occasion the photographs uh, the legion of photographs yeah, that, uh, yeah. that Jeff took of David uh, have tipped up here and there mm. um, and not least on his website um, Um, But it it looks like a a truly amazing book, and so I'm just waiting with bated breath for that. It's one of those
1: that you look at it and you think, Oh, well, no, should have. It was published by Genesis, who specialise mm. in these luxury books, and mm. they were signed, weren't the first 250 copies, I think, signed by Jeff and uh, and Bowie. And at the time, I did on my art. I yeah. just couldn't justify laying out hundreds of pounds for oh, that. No, but you wish you had now. Oh, uh, it'd
0: be worth a fortune now. Yeah, and anyway. He, and he also um, has exhibitions of his photography. Yeah. Uh, but the weirdest—I tell you this is the weird escapade. I was just sat downstairs um, because we record this podcast in my house, don't we? Bob? We do. Yes. And I was watching the TV, and it was that location, location, location program. Oh, yeah. And I was sat there, and this tiny little house came on. So the front of it was not much wider than the front door. Mm. And then it tapered out. So it was a triangle, basically. Yes. And it just utilized the space, the tiny space, in between two uh, buildings, naturally. And so I was watching it. I was thinking, that's amazing. That I wonder who had that built then. Bloody hell, that's Jeff. And so um, I was looking at it and they didn't make any mention of, of Jeff's history, his past or any mention of right. Bowie or anything. And then they proceeded to uh, go around the house. So it was that small. You would walk in, as I say, just get through the door. They'd walk to the back and there was almost, uh, as I remember, almost a ladder taking you up because it was so tiny. Right. And so you'd go up and then, so each different level mm. would have a different purpose, as you would okay. expect. So yeah. in a normal house, you would have a kitchen, you know, and... Maybe a pantry over there, and and then you've got the living room and the parlour or whatever. Yeah, but this is just like you go up one, right? That's where that's the the, the, the living space. If you like yeah. another one, kitchen bedroom, and Mm. all that kind of stuff. That's as I remember it anyway. And I I sent him a text. I said, you're on telly at the moment. He said, yeah, I know. Yeah, that's my
1: house. I was like, because you knew the house, didn't you? I know that. It used to fascinate me, that house. You'd see pictures of it think, who would live there? Now I know. Honestly, I used to be really fascinated by that. And the idea that, yeah, you can use that space. Just building it, why not? And now, it, you know, as you say, it kind of fans out towards the back slightly because it's this strange triangular shape. Yeah, the, so the two buildings either side of it didn't just
0: run parallel to each other. Mm. They just, no, they just went off in different directions. <laughs> it's just really strange little oh, occurrence. Well. Uh, you you would hope it would be available on uh, on on YouTube or something. Wouldn't well, you? maybe we need to check it possibly, out. Possibly, possibly. Okay, so we're now going to get to the point where we uh, get involved in the stuff that uh, Jeff sent through this morning to us, aren't mm, we, Bob? We
1: okay. are. Yeah. So we should start at the beginning, shouldn't we? Really, Defoe. Jeff McCormack, born twenty seventh of February nineteen forty seven in Bromley, Kent. So that's just a just over a month after Bowie himself. Yeah. So uh, this is an extract now taken from the book "From Station to Station" by Jeff McCormack, two thousand and seven. He said, I first met David Jones when we were both seven or eight years old at Burnt Ash
0: Primary School in Bromley, Kent. David is, in fact, my second oldest pal. My first is George Underwood, the painter, whom I met at my first school, St Mary's, also in Bromley. George and David would later become good friends in secondary
1: school, Bromley Tech. Later still, he says by some twelve or thirteen years, George would not only be creating artwork for David, Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust and more, but for Tyrannosaurus Rex, Proclharum, and many others. For some reason, my mother thought that Burnt Ash Primary was a better and more challenging school in St. Mary's and would somehow turn her faltering second son and third child into the gifted student she knew me to be. It didn't. For some reason, it left me even more uninspired. I have a sneaking suspicion it was a school uniform. It was brown.
0: See that sense of fashion already creeping in there. My mother also decided a little godliness couldn't hurt my moral development and slow me into St. Mary's Church Choir. The Jones and Underwood clans must have been under the same heavenly guidance, for all three of us ended up in cassocks, surplices, and ruffles singing at choir practice and in church on Sundays. Weddings were the best gigs. Not only were you paid five shillings, a princely sum in those days, but if the ceremony took place in the week, you got a day off school. Oh,
1: wow, eh? Oh, if only there were photos. Another activity to bring the three of us together was the 18th Bromley Cub Scouts. The meetings were held, and naturally, at St Mary's Church Hall, uniform green. I wouldn't knock the Cub Scout movement. It was one of my first big adventures to take a camping trip down to the coast, sing a few songs around the campfire, and sleep under the stars. Many years later, David and I were about to do it all over again, but on a somewhat bigger scale, under different
0: stars with wackier uniforms. Are you all right, mate? I was sitting at a desk in an office in North London, staring into space, stunned. Are you all right, mate? Mike asked again. I've just got a call from David Bowie informing me that I am now in his band and I'm going to go on a world
1: tour. That's amazing, Mike said. My dad's going too. He's Bowie's driver. Great. (laughs) That's great. Uh, He continues, We boarded the SS Canberra on the 24th of January, 1973. Just like in the movies, a brass band played on the quayside. I remember thinking how enormous the ship was. It towered above us like some gigantic wedding cake. Apart from a couple of journeys to France by ferry, this is my first experience of cruising. Initially, I was wary of the courteous manner in which the ship's officers treated us. They looked so smart
0: and precise in their uniforms, quite the opposite of us. It worried me. I couldn't help thinking that, once we were far out to sea, they might sidle up to us with a Jack Nicholson grin and say, right, you two
1: freaks, we're in charge now. (laughs) We were certainly different to the ship's usual clientele, who, by and large, were middle to old-aged, upper-middle-class Britons and Americans in semi-retirement. We were shown to our suite, which included two bedrooms and a large lounge, and went back on. Deck. The brass band was still playing jolly little tunes while people waved goodbyes from ship to shore and back again. There was a deep rumbling from the engines and slowly we pulled away. People waved ever more furiously as if they'd never see each other again. For my part, I had no idea that I'd be gone for the best part of three years. Wow. Uh, It took a day and a half to realise that near-complete
0: inactivity is par for the course on a cruise ship. By day two, afternoon tea was an exciting event to look forward to. When it came to dinner, we decided to really make an effort and dress up. My fairly conservative clothes and long, dark, curly hair contrasted rather nicely with David's bright
1: red barnet, shaved eyebrows, make and exotic, handmade Freddie Baretti suits. <laughs> he says, uh, we took on the roles of a modern-day Oscar Wilde and Bosie. I'd turn to David while dining and ask, more vegetable, my dear Oscar? He'd look towards the ornate ceiling with a look of disdain and say, I find vegetables so very vulgar. To arrive in New York for the first time by air would have been a culture shock. Arriving by sea, senses lulled by the gentle pace of the Canberra, it was something like a bungee jump on amyl nitrate. Everything seemed bigger and brasher than anything I'd ever seen. Cars, trucks, people, and it was both exciting and confusing. We were greeted by various RCA and management staff and led to a waiting limousine. We were travelling
0: to the Gramercy Park Hotel at 2 Lexington Avenue. The Gramercy is what you would call a traditional hotel. The warm, inviting atmosphere was a perfect antidote to the frenzied drive from the docks. As we sat at a table by a window overlooking a small park, with a pianist tinkling away softly in the background, I recall feeling almost tranquil. It was like being back on board the Canberra.
1: I clearly remember thinking that, at that moment, life could not be sweeter. Oh, how nice. Situated at 213 Park Avenue South, between 17th and 18th, just off Union Square, Max's was a late 60s, early 70s mecca for film stars, rock stars artists and photographers. Many of Max's regular patrons were famous or went to, on to become so. Willem de Kooning, Julian Schnabel, Larry Rivers and Andy Warhol were frequent visitors and on any night you'd usually find a Jagger, Lennon or a Lou Reed as well as a couple of smart film stars looking out of place amidst the rest of the druggy, dressed down punters. Max's was run by a man
0: called Mickey Ruskin. Invariably he'd stand at the door vetting the clientele. Upstairs a small music room had previously played host to the Velvet Underground, Iggy Pop and the New York Dolls amongst others. We knew David Johansson, lead singer of the Dolls, and his Marilyn Monroe-alike girlfriend, Sindra Fox. And with half of Bowie's management team being ex-Warhol associates, we
1: had a ready-made Max's posse. In London, David had played me an album by somebody called Biff Rose. I hate to admit it, but I just didn't get it. Of course, I didn't say so, coward that I am. I was still grateful to David for turning me on to Van Morrison's wonderful Astral Weeks. It was very important to me to find a white singer who sang soul music without mimicking black singers. So, not wanting to appear ungrateful, I went along with David's proclamations of Biff's genius. This was always a bad
0: idea. At best, you end up unwrapping the best of Biff or Santa and Johnny play Biff Rose every Christmas for the rest of your life. At worst, you get an evening with Biff Rose live at Max's Kansas
1: City. (laughs) Oh, I felt such a moron. Surely, if Biff was a stiff, he could never have got a gig at Max's. Upstairs, there seemed to be a distinct lack of audience, not counting David and I sitting at a small table right at the front of the small room. The rest of our posse seemed to have other things to do, like evaporate. At any rate, Biff came onto a rapturous hand
0: clap from Bowie and did his Biff stuff. And it's at this point that I tell you he was awesome. I was mesmerised. I was blown away. I um, still didn't get it, actually. In fact, once Biff had boffed,
1: I'm not even sure David was too overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Then there was a series of dull funereal chords from the very same piano Biff had just finished torturing. This was soon accompanied by a wrist-slashingly depressive vocal. On and on it droned. Was this a prank? Was somebody actually trying to down? stage biff... I looked around the darkened room at the other five members of the audience for clues. Bowie's delicate features had the expression of a man in great pain. Groany, moany, groan, went the singer, and we eyed up the exit. But we still had full glasses of beer and felt duty-bound to finish them. Lucky we did, too.
0: As we concentrated on downing the amber liquid as fast as we could, Mr Moan strapped on a Fender telecaster and was joined by a band. He then launched into one of the most amazing songs, one of the most amazing sets I've ever witnessed. The song was called Does a Bus Stop at 42nd Street. The band, the E Street Band, the artist, Bruce Springsteen. The album, Greetings from Ashbury Park, was
1: on our turntables the next morning. Thanks, Biff. So they got something out of it in the end anyway. Absolutely. The band I joined at the beginning of 1973 was basically an extension of Bowie's original Spiders. Apart from Mike Garson, who was already installed on piano and Mellotron, I was one of four new recruits with Ken Fordham and Brian Wilshaw on sax and flutes, John Hutchinson on rhythm guitar and backing vocals, and me on percussion and backing vocals. We all stood at one side of the stage, Mike Garson the other. I have to admit that it was like having a backstage
0: pass but being allowed to join in. However, it was... It was interesting to witness at such close quarters how hard his bowiness worked for his supper. Not that I knew it then, but he would require considerably
1: more effort from me in future shows. Uh, he continues, Brian Wilson was pretty quiet, but Ken Fordham was a laugh. He had a typical jobbing muso's philosophy on life. One day this, the next day that. He'd been playing some kind of ghastly lounge music at Heathrow Airport before he got the Bowie gig. Uh, David and I immediately renamed him Ken Funky Fordham on account of the fact he was spectacularly unfunky. <laughs> when introducing the band, David would announce him as such. Ken saw the irony and always took a little bow. The tour opened at Radio City Music Hall in New
0: York. David told me that it was a place he most wanted to play in- in the whole city. He took me there for a quick record beforehand, and we watched a show that was as camp as a venue itself. When the famous Rockettes dance troupe came on to perform their precision, high-kicking dance routine, it made Bowie even more determined
1: to play there, against all the odds his wish came true. We rehearsed the show at a big sound stage owned by the record company RCA. I knew the material pretty well, as I'd already done some backing vocals for the Aladdin Sane album, which David was gradually working into the live shows. Hutch, who had worked with David in the 60s on projects like Feathers, had no problem learning the new material. The brass section, like most session musicians, read their parts, played them and looked at their watches. On the night, Bowie was fantastic. However, right at the end of the show, something rather strange happened.
0: As we finished the last number, a fan managed to get through security, jump on stage and get within touching distance of David. David seemed to somehow, sort of, collapse. The fan was ejected and David carried to his dressing room where he recovered to find a sea of extremely worried faces.
1: I'm still not sure what had befallen him. Right. Uh, As for me, the first time I ever performed on a stage is distinguished by the following three facts. It was with David Bowie... It was at New York's Radio City Music Hall and Salvador Dali was in the audience. That's fairly surreal. It sure is. And uh, yeah, it was well reported, wasn't it? There was a live review of that show uh, with Bowie fainting at the end of
0: it. There was, yes, yeah. uh, Yeah, and it was well documented. Um, uh, And and Jeff also told me, I mean, and it is in Woody's book, actually, uh, but of course, uh, Woody and June were getting married at the end of the Aladdin Sane tour in 1973. And and, and as I remember, Woody hadn't sent out any official invites, Mm. uh, but uh, Bowie and Mick Ronson were both meant to be there to to uh, well give june away and to be the best man yeah and neither turned up yes as we know um because obviously woody was on his way out of the band already out of the band and so uh, to stand in for for david and mick Hmm. was jeff and trevor boulder right who ended up performing duties and jeff told me that he walked june up the aisle ah right okay uh, to parson garson Right. <laughs> as he put it. So Mike Garson was, oh, okay. was, was the, uh, the parson, the, uh, the minister for the wedding. Oh, wonderful. But yeah, um, so uh, just to wrap it up, I mean, and again, you know, um, so uh, we'll have to wait and see if Jeff um, gets his next version of the book out. It will happen. I'm absolutely sure of that. And if you get a chance to go and see him uh, w- with his exhibition, then you really should. And oh, if you yeah. can meet him, he's just such a really generous, sweet man uh, and, and supremely talented as well. So uh, yeah, Jeff McCormack, we salute you. So that's it for this episode of
1: the A to Z of David Bowie. But once again, before you go... If you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive
0: Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Why? so now you're thinking, $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well,
1: computer, actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right mark. Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as... Interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends. There'll be regular film Bowie quizzes. Bowie guitar tutorials. Unreleased archive written material.
0: Competitions. And perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah,
1: that'll be me, Mark, Howard Knock and Jason Reed Visiting various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just $5 a Month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's P A T R E O N.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, BowieCheapThings.com. Book early.